Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and this is our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we considered chapter 7, in which David expressed his desire to build a temple for the presence of God. David had built his own palace in Jerusalem and had relocated the ark to the city, but the ark was housed in an impermanent tent. As David put it, how can I dwell in a house of cedars while the ark of the Lord is within a tent? Natan had encouraged David to proceed with his plans, but God then communicated to Natan that the time was not quite right for the temple to be built. As God put it, first, stability of the realm and security has to be achieved. The wars, have to come to an end. Then and only then is it possible to talk about building a temple. But nevertheless, God said, you are the first David to have expressed the desire to build a temple, the first in Israelite history. No other leader, said God, during the period of the judges ever spoke about building a temple. And in that respect, said God, you are exceptional. As a result, God made a promise to David to build a different kind of temple for him, namely a lasting dynasty that the kingly line would descend from David forever. And David responded, not with bitterness or acrimony, but with embrace and acceptance and gratitude. Thank you, God, for bestowing that blessing upon me. Chapter 6 and chapter 7, therefore, the relocation of the ark and David's desire to build a temple, go together. The topic of both is, of course, quite similar. And they really speak of David in perhaps the most noble terms in Sefer Shemuel. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 we'll be looking at together. Two of those chapters, 8 and 10, describe David's wars. The chapter in between, chapter 9, seems to be a bit of a wedge between them, but as we shall see, it's probably placed there deliberately. Chapter 8 begins with David's conquest of the Philistines. It's only mentioned in a single verse. Remember that when David first came to the throne of a united Israel in chapter 5, the Philistines attacked and they were defeated in two separate battles. But now they are completely subjugated. The Philistine menace, which had hovered over the people of Israel for hundreds of years, was therefore finally removed by David as king of Israel. And with that, chapter 8 begins. The chapter goes on to describe David's other victories over the Moabites in verse number 2 over the king of Tsova, which is in northern Syria, over the king of Damascus, 
all of these kingdoms are overrun and conquered and become David's vassals. Along the way, David acquires some allies. Verse number nine, To'i, the king of Hamat, which is also located in what we call Syria of today. And To'i sends many expensive gifts to David, silver and gold and bronze. The text tells us in verse number 11, those gifts were designated by David for God with all of the other silver and gold which he had designated and dedicated to God from all of the nations round about that he had conquered. This, of course, provides us with a direct link with chapter 7. David was denied the possibility of building the temple, but that did not stop David from laying the groundwork, including setting aside the precious materials that would be used in its construction. Other conquests are mentioned in verse number 12. Aram, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and once again the Philistines. And finally, the Edomites in verse number 14. If we take all of that together, a certain picture begins to emerge. The king of Tsova and Damascus are in, those kingdoms are in the north. The kingdoms of Moab and Ammon are to the east. The Amalekites to the south. The Philistines to the west. The Edomites to the southeast. Effectively, what the chapter therefore describes is David's success at securing his kingdom from all of the threats that surrounded it in every single direction. All of the petty kingdoms that orbit around David and had always served as a source of hostility and aggression to the Israelite tribes are neutralized by the king of Israel. And this, of course, represents an unprecedented development in biblical history. For the very first time, the tribes dwell in security with every single external threat removed and overcome. And in fact, the conquests that David inflicts and the vassal status that he imposes would actually remain in place for hundreds of years. So it was with respect to the kingdoms around. With respect to his own kingdom, the chapter tells us in verse number 15, David ruled over all of Israel, and David acted with justice and righteousness to all of his people. So not only has David secured the realm from the external threats, but David has also instituted a government which is based upon justice and righteousness with respect to his Israelite subjects. Often, kings who conquer and overrun surrounding kingdoms also tend to conquer and overrun their own subjects. 
but David is careful to preserve that balance. Securing the realm from external threat means, must mean for David, certainly thousands of years ago, the conquest of the surrounding kingdoms that threatened David's own. But that does not cause David to become a tyrant. And with respect to his own people, the people of Israel, David deals justly with justice and with righteousness. The chapter concludes with a list of important officials in David's court. Yoav ben Siruyah was the chief of staff. Yehoshaphat ben Achilud, the secretary. Sadok and Achimelech, the priests. Sirayah, the scribe. Benayahu ben Yehoyada, responsible for the Kiritites and the Palatites, and the sons of David were ministers as well. The truth is we have seen a list like this before. When Saul's kingdom was described in chapter 14 of the first book of Samuel, the officials in his kingdom were also spelled out, but there were only two. One was his chief of staff, Avner, and the other was his wife. This is a similar list, but clearly it indicates a much greater degree of complexity. David has a chief of staff, but he also has a secretary. A secretary is, of course, responsible for record-keeping, for keeping uh, the annals of the kingdom, for communicating with surrounding peoples. We have the priests, Sadok and Aviatar. We have Sirayah, the scribe, who takes account and preserves records. And all of this indicates complexity. The more complexity there is in a government, the greater the need for accurate record keeping, the greater the need for skilled officials to be responsible for particular activities. So actually, comparing and contrasting these two seemingly bureaucratic lists leads us to an inescapable conclusion. David's kingdom is on its way to becoming a complex and large kingdom, a regional superpower. And David will be the king that unleashes that dynamic. Chapter 9 introduces us to an act of kindness and compassion that David now does. He inquires about any survivors from the house of Shaul. Is anyone left? After all, we've already heard about the death of Shaul's sons, three of them in battle, and of course, Ishbosheth assassinated by his officers. Is there any, anyone left, says David, such that I might do an act of compassion towards him because of my oath to Jonathan? The house of Shaul had a steward by the name of Tziva. Tziva is summoned and David inquires, is there anyone left? Tziva responds, yes, there is a son remaining to Jonathan who is a cripple. Where is that son, says David? And Tziva indicates to the king where he might be found 
in the house of Machir ben Amiel in Lodavar, which is actually on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That son's name is Mephibosheth, the son of Yonatan, not to be confused with Ishbosheth, the son of Shaul. And when he is brought before David, he falls upon his face and he bows to the ground. And David addresses him as Mephibosheth, and he responds, Here is your servant. David goes on, Do not fear. I will act with compassion towards you because of Jonathan, your father, and I will restore to you the estate of Shaul, your grandfather, and you will be supported at my table forever. Mephibosheth responds, What is your servant that you have turned towards me? I'm simply a dead dog. But David now charges Tziva, who was Shaul's steward, to work the land on behalf of Mephibosheth, even as Mephibosheth will be supported by the king directly in Jerusalem. Mephibosheth himself had a young son by the name of Micha. And with that, the chapter ends. So, a slightly different perspective, this time not about wars and battles and conquests and victories, but about a small act of compassion and David's allegiance to the pledge that he swore to Yonatan, his friend. In the exchange between David and Mephibosheth, it's quite clear that when Mephibosheth is summoned, he is scared for his life. He falls to the ground, he bows. David tells him, reassures him, do not be afraid. A sure sign that Mephibosheth is afraid. And of course, he should be. Because since he is the sole survivor of the previous dynasty, the conclusion to be drawn is if you are summoned by the king of the new dynasty, probably nothing positive awaits you. But David proves otherwise. As we have seen multiple times in his story, he will remain true to the oath and the pledge that he swore to Yonatan which took place back in chapter 20 of the first book of Samuel. Yonatan said, Look after my descendants if anything happens. I know that you will be king one day. And David swore that he would. And now he keeps his pledge. So the text indicated at the end of chapter number 8, David acted with justice and righteousness towards all of his people. And in fact, that now comes to include even the descendant of his arch-rival, Shaul. David will do no harm to the descendant of Yonatan because that is in fact what he pledged. So David's success on the battlefield is actually matched by his success in showing compassion and kindness through the previous dynasty, even to the point of elevating Mephibosheth to one who eats at his table. The cynics will say David simply was interested in maintaining surveillance over this descendant of the previous dynasty. 
But the text makes it clear that Mephibosheth is no threat. Therefore, David's act is an act of nobility and an act of kindness. That brings us to chapter 10. Afterwards, we are told, the son of, afterwards, the king of the Ammonites dies and Hanun, his son, comes to the throne. David says, I will act with compassion towards Hanun, the son of Nachash. Just as his father did compassion towards me, I will do compassion towards him and send my delegates to offer my condolences over the death of his father. But when David's delegates arrive, they are treated with contempt by the new king of Ammon, the new king of the Ammonites. Remember that the Ammonites are a kingdom on the eastern side of the Ardennes. Way back when, in the first book of Samuel, Nahash, the king of Ammon, had actually attacked the Israelites at Yavesh Gilad, and Shaul had saved them from his clutches. And this probably explains why Nahash was an ally of David. Since Nahash was an enemy of Shaul, and my enemy's enemy is my friend, therefore David had forged some sort of a re relationship with the Ammonite king. And when Nahash died, therefore David sent his men to offer condolences to his son, Hanun, but to no avail. Hanun sends off David's men in disgrace, which of course is understood to be an act of war. David gathers his men and the Ammonites gather their mercenaries to fight David's army. David's force is led by the two brothers, Yoav and Avishai. Yoav's role is to fight the mercenaries that the Ammonites have hired to defend them. Avishai will attack the Ammonites at their capital city. And in fact, there are two fronts that are fought on simultaneously. The Aramean mercenaries are defeated by Yoav, and the Ammonites retreat into their walled city. And in this way, victory is achieved by David. The Arameans gather a larger force, which David now defeats personally, including with the overthrow of Shovach, the chief of staff of the Aramean king. And from that point forwards, the Arameans in northern Syria basically become David's vassals. So these chapters, as we've pointed out, chapter 8 on the one hand, chapter 10 on the other, describe David's victories over the surrounding kingdoms. And those victories seem to be incredibly complete. There is no kingdom left in the immediate area of David's realm that threatens him. Sandwiched in between is the story of Mephibosheth. As if to say, David's victories on the battlefield did not lead him to become a tyrannical ruler. Quite the opposite. He will even show kindness and compassion 
to the direct descendant of Shaul, his archenemy. So overall, we've now come to the end of this section. It started with chapter 5, the conquest of Jerusalem. It now ends with chapter 10, the conquest of the Arameans. And in short order, we have seen this glorious rise as David assumes kingship, establishes his capital, relocates the ark, defeats all of the enemies of the people of Israel, and acts towards his own people with righteousness and with justice. These are, in fact, the most glorious of the chapters that tell David's story. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.